Violet's Five Questions, a deep dive into deep conversations. Violet is designing a future where the last stage of life is recognised and planned for and more honest and open conversations are possible. We're working to close the gap between what people hope for and what happens. Violet's Five Questions were created in collaboration with Dr. Catherine Mannix, palliative care physician and author of Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. I'm your host, Annie Fox, Head of Brand and Community at Violet, and I have the privilege of asking our guests these five questions. We hope this podcast will inspire your own self-reflection practice and give you new insights and tools for approaching complex conversations in your professional life and beyond. Today, we welcome to the podcast Dr. Catherine Mannix, a retired palliative care doctor who these days is campaigning for better understanding of the end of life. Well, I have the very great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Catherine Mannix to the first episode of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's uh, only fitting that you would be the first guest on this podcast, given that you and your book and the work we have done together to come up with the five questions has inspired this entire podcast. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about the book and what compelled you to write it? Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, the book's called Listen, um, and it came out of many, many years of mulling over what it is that makes conversations work or just fail and how often when we've got something that's really of significance to us you know emotionally important to us we don't engage in it we keep thinking there'll be a better time a moment will come when the stars will just align or the person that we need to talk to will start the conversation and we'll leap into it and and we all know that doesn't happen If you want to um, ask somebody on a date or discuss rearranging the way you run the house between the housemates or, you know, you decide that you're not happy with the way your kids are behaving, we need to have a really serious conversation about this now. Um, Actually, we have to start the conversation. And so partly it was that. And then because I had previously written a book, about end-of-life care and the way we die and got lots and lots of letters from people saying, you've really convinced me this is stuff we need to talk about, but I don't know how to start that conversation or um, my adult kids won't let me have that conversation, they close me down or I'm not sure I can talk to my dad about dying, he'll think that I'm wishing him away, that kind of thing. So those things came together and it's become a book called Listen, how to find the words for tender conversations. And I love that you call them tender conversations. Oftentimes, I know that I've been guilty of calling them difficult conversations, um, challenging conversations. Um, Why tender? Why do you call them tender conversations? It it really was an act of rebellion, if I'm honest. (laughs) I think that if we call them difficult, challenging, courageous, all of those kind of words, they move us into a kind of uh, having a conversation mindset that's kind of defensive. Uh, You know, I've got to get through this. It's a task to be done. Whereas I think that really the reason we find ourselves quailing at the edge of these conversations is because of the deep emotion that's involved in them. And that actually it's a subject that is tender and the person that we need to bring along as ourselves is our tender self 
into them. And if we call it a tender conversation, um, instead of getting our battle armor on, like a courageous conversation or difficult conversation, actually what it makes us do is it makes us take our battle armor off. Often the way into that conversation is to invite rather than insist and then invite the other person to explain how it is for them. So actually, rather than starting off with, okay, by the time we get to the end of this conversation, you're going to know what I think, and giving somebody a really good talking to, at the end of this conversation, I, I want to really understand what you think, and, and maybe tell you a bit about how it looks from my viewpoint. But what we've done is given the person a really good listening to. That makes them feel safer. It enables them to say things they might otherwise feel less inclined to say. What they say can often change our perspective of the situation completely. And we can transform our understanding of a situation so much better by listening than we can by taking the courage to tell you this difficult stuff that, you know, it's for your own good. I'm going to tell you this. I think it's a true act of kismet that we came together to develop these five questions. Um, what do you think these five questions could help reveal about tender conversations if people were to incorporate them into their own reflective practice? I love the distillation of the five questions because I think what it's done is talked about not just the conversation, but who are we, who are the participants in this conversation and what baggage were we holding when we came into the conversation? How did the conversation go? What things happened during the conversation that changed our understanding? But what baggage had we ditched? And what new understanding had we acquired? How are we relating to each other now? Because very often being prepared to be vulnerable with each other is an incredibly bonding experience. And if we bring something for a conversation that is actually an uncomfortable emotion, sorrow, anger, shame, regret, then exposing that, having the confidence to stay with it when the other person reveals it, instead of trying to make them better and fix it, to just listen and let them say it, is something that is bridge building between two human beings. And in exploring what's happened between us, often there's a kind of peeling off of those kind of layers of the onion till inside that tender self is there. And so you come out of it, not only more calm within yourself about the situation, but also with a new feeling of who this person is that I'm in relationship with. Well, I'm excited to ask you these five questions as the creator of them and the, the co-designer of them. Um, but before we get stuck in, maybe it would be helpful for you to just give us in a few sentences for context, the conversation that you'll be holding in your, your head and your heart as we ask these five questions. So this is a conversation that I had with a, with a much beloved and elderly uncle, who in fact was not a relation of ours at all, but his wife became so close to our family that we called them uncle and auntie. And they were like a kind of extra pair of grandparents to us when I was growing up. And when I went off to medical school, they were incredibly proud of me. And while I was at medical school, auntie died. 
They were a traditional Irish family. They had a wake. It's the first time I'd been to a proper wake with a body in the house and eating and drinking and laughter going on around it. It was extraordinary. But several years later, I was on a visit home and my family expressed some anxiety that uncle was still setting a place for auntie at dinner every day. And that they felt that maybe he was grieving wrong, that he'd got lost in his bereavement. And because I was a doctor now, I was dispatched to go and sort it out. So I went along to have an evening meal with him. And this is the conversation that took place over that meal. Well, thank you so much for painting that picture. Let's dive in. What were you bringing to the conversation? And another way to think about it, what unnamed ingredients did you bring with you? So I was bringing a long relationship of loving him very much. Um, And I was also bringing the whole weight of my family's expectations that in some way I would make it better. I would sort this out. So partly I, I felt I was bringing subterfuge, that I was there on a secret mission and that felt a little bit uncomfortable. It was a delight to go and see him. But actually, under the surface, there was all this family anxiety bubbling and I was there to try and sort it out. What mattered most to you going into the conversation? And then what mattered most to you at, at the end? And if those two things changed, how? I think when I, when I arrived, what I wanted was to run away because I felt so anxious about um, taking on the conversation. But I also felt that my job was to try and suss out what was going on and I was wondering how I was going to broach with him at the end of the evening when I'd realized that he was obviously completely bonkers that he was you know hadn't progressed in his bereavement that he was making meals for her and buying flowers for her and chatting to her all of the time how was I going to have a conversation with him that said you know this isn't normal don't you and actually we definitely need to get you some help here so that was my kind of discomfort and I was wondering how how am I going to get into this by the end of the evening it was absolutely clear to me that he was coping beautifully and that the misunderstanding wasn't his his understanding it was our family's understanding of the way that he was behaving and that actually transformed during the conversation and the conversation itself was almost with both of them. Did you set an agenda? How much were you controlling the conversation versus how much were you holding space? So I was I was quite a young doctor um, and I've discovered over the subsequent decades that our job is to allow things to be and give the nudges that allow people to be the architects of their own solutions. So what actually happened over the course of the conversation was um, he's making dinner in the kitchen and he's asking me to set places at the table. And he says to me, okay, so if you get uh, three plates out of the sideboard and uh, make sure that you use the plate with the pink roses on, that's Auntie Al's plate. So I was trying to work out how am I going to get into this conversation? How do I start it? So, okay, Unc, where where do I put the plates? So he says, oh, I, I sit by the kitchen door and Auntie Al sat by the window. So I noticed this 
change of tense. Um, so he says, so you just put yourself in the middle between us. Oh, okay. Has he really changed tense? This, or does, does he really think she's sitting there? Um, so I put things out and then he comes in, he's got this big tray and he's got, he's been making soup, but there's only two bowls of soup on the tray. And I've noticed that, you know, Auntie Al isn't actually getting any soup. And he tells me that he bought the flowers on the table for Auntie Al today. So they're yellow roses and they were always her favourites. And, you know, I buy her flowers every week. So I think, right, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just have to bite this bullet. So I started by asking him a question. And grown-up me is quite proud of young me for doing that. Because asking a question is such a helpful way in. So I just said to her, do you know, Unc, do, do you think it's unusual to still be setting a place for Auntie Al? And he was completely up for the conversation, which was fantastic. And he said to me, I'm not silly. I know she's dead, but it's an enormous comfort to me to be able to talk to her, to spend time with her, to forget for a while that she's dead. And that enables me to be able to bear the time when I do remember. And so we sat down and he poured some glasses of water, two glasses of water. And then he said to me, you know, Auntie Alan, I we're so very proud of you. And I thought, yeah, I, I've always known that they were very proud of me. But actually that he's using the present tense in this conversation where her plate is set by the window. And I suddenly, I just, I just got it. So two things happened. One was that I kind of had that sense of, oh my goodness, yes, you can suspend knowing that the person is dead and re-experience all of the love and the support and the importance that they were for you in the present instead of just in the past. And that's happening to me now in this meal with you and with her strangely present in this way. And also, yes, you've chosen this. This isn't that you are not processing it, that you don't think that she's dead. It's that there are moments when it's unbearable for you that she is dead. So you just go back to her not being dead for a while. You choose to not know. And in choosing to not know, you transform what you can bear the rest of the time. And that kind of enormous sense of relief then, that, okay, I don't have to talk to him about getting bereavement counselling and seeing his GP and all the rest of it. He's completely got this. He's absolutely sorted out a way of living his life without the love of his life. Thank you so much for going there. Um, this next question is, is if I can pick a favourite of the five, I find this question to be incredible and one that I have never taken the time to reflect on in, in my own conversations. What was the role of silence? I could so easily have told him, you know, this is what should be happening and these are, these are the ways that you should be dealing with it. Um, because I respected him so much and also because I was so anxious about saying the wrong thing, I didn't say anything. And that created a silence that these days I would use deliberately. And so there was silence. But silence is such an important part of getting to understanding. So even just as I'm talking to you now about it, Annie, I realised that what happened was that he gave me the silence and I understood during it. He just said, we're both very proud of you. 
and he just left it there. And then my experience of being lost for words was the experience that people have in these tender conversations where they move from this understanding to that understanding. That journey, that space requires thinking, processing, and that requires silence to happen. And um, our last question, if you could go back and do it again, would you do anything differently? I would go with less trepidation and I would feel that I could be honest in my curiosity. Funk, we're just also interested about the way you've preserved the presence of Antial in your life. And I'd really like to understand more about that because it's clearly a huge comfort to you and I could learn. So tell me about it and let me, let me understand it. So I think I'd approach it with less anxiety. I'd approach it with more humility. I wouldn't be going there to fix it. I'd be going there to, to understand it. But I'd still start with a question. Thank you so much. What a um, perfect and um, incredibly personal way for our listeners to be introduced to the power of these five questions in everything you just shared. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Violet's five questions can also help you create your own reflective practice around complex or high stakes conversations. And if those conversations are related to the last stage of life, you can chat to a Violet guide to get the guidance you may need. Jump onto violet.org.au or dial 1-800-VIOLET to find out more.